Hello and welcome to the Peter Switzer Show. I'm Peter Switzer, of course. And with reporting season over, one company that reported well that often gets bagged by the media and market experts was Harvey Norman. So we catch up with the very unique Jerry Harvey on why the experts don't understand just how great his retail business Harvey Norman is. And it comes, if you'd believe Jerry in the past, and you bought Harvey Norman stocks on March 23 this year, you would have made 80% in five months on what Jerry describes as one of the best retailers in the world. After Jerry, I catch up with one of the best journalists in the world, the BBC's Nick Bryant. Nick has written a controversial book called When America America, stop being great. Well, here's my chat with Jerry Harvey. I'm talking to Jerry Harvey of Harvey Norman, who has just come out with a very good report. Jerry, thanks for joining us. Oh, that's good, Peter. Tell us what's behind. The, well, tell us exactly what the good news was out of this report, and then I'll ask you how you actually did it. Okay, so the good news is we've just had the best profit we've ever had in the history of the company. So um, our company was a star stellar performer on the stock exchange between 1987 and 2000, and we doubled in size every three years, and um, we we were we turned a dollar into a hundred dollars in 13 years. So then we started to consolidate from 2000 onwards. We started to open up in other countries in the world, and now. Um, when, and then we hit the global financial crisis, 2008-9-10, and we lost a lot of money in Ireland and things slowed down in Australia. Um, but now we're back on the run again, and um, now we've eclipsed anything we've ever done before. And it's not only good in Australia, it's good in the other countries we're in. We're in New Zealand with 40 shops. We're in um, Singapore and Malaysia with about 40 shops. We're in Slovenia and Croatia with half a dozen shops and more opening. We're in Ireland and Northern Ireland, opening shops there at the moment. We just opened one in Galway. Um, so we're back on the move again. Uh, we've had the best year we've ever had, and we've gone into July, August with our sales holding up way above last year. So we're looking forward to the next five or ten years as being, you know, like, very memorable year for Harvey Norman, a very big growth factor involved. Do you think the share market um, really appreciates your performance, Jerry? No, because it's, it's quite strange. Because where where we they appreciated us a lot more than they should have um, in years gone by. Now they underappreciate us, and I, I look at our share price and I think it should be seven or eight dollars, and it's four or five dollars, just depending on. In, in fact, it dropped to two dollars fifty just a while back with um, with everyone else did. So, um, you know, when you look at the earnings per share on Harvey Norman in the top 100 companies or the top 200 companies, it's hard to find anyone any better. And, and yet we're not priced accordingly. And then we ask ourselves, why is that? And um, it's very hard to answer. It's because, you know, they... Other retailers are priced at a much higher price than we are. And so it's a bit of a mystery. And you talk to people that should know, people like yourself or whoever, and and they say, yeah, I, I recognise that it is low. You're actually the best value of any share that I can think of. So, But, but they're not buying them. So I think to myself, well, 
that has to correct itself because sooner or later someone's going to look at it and say, hey, that's all crazy. And the number of shares that change hands on a daily basis, we're short sellers in and out all the time. Some days we have 10, 12, 15 million shares a day change hands. And in the period of a year, um, 1.5 million shares change hands, and yet we've only got 500 million shares in the free float. And so you think, <laughs> this is crazy stuff. People don't buy shares anymore to hold shares for one, two, three, four, five years as a long-term investment. People buy shares to make a quick buck and get out. Or they're gambling day to day. And it's not just the short sellers are gambling. The institutions lend their shares to the short sellers. The institutions gamble. And then you've got all the mums and dads gambling. So the share market's become a, a gambling den. It's a casino. Mm. But, Jerry, do you think part of the aversion um, to buying your stock by, I guess as professionals, I don't think the amateurs are, are against uh, Harvey Norman, but the, the so-called professionals, is, is it ages, you know, like you're too old, the, the, the business model's old, you know, like Kogan is the new business model. Do you think there's, there's some kind of mistaken belief that, you know, Harvey Norman's past it and maybe you're, you're past it? <laughs> I, think, I think there's good reason to believe I'm past it, <laughs> Yeah, well. I'm, 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 I'm just turning 81. Mm. And um, and so I draw my inspiration from people like Rupert Murdoch, that's nine or ten years older or something. So Warren Buffett's a bit older than you too, isn't he? Yeah. So Kate then had a meeting with Warren Buffett. It lasted an hour and a half, and he, he, you know, one on one. Mm. And uh, she said to Warren, you know, I better you're a busy man. He said, No, 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 you stick around. I like you. You know. Mm. And so. Then people came, she came out and they said, Kate, you know, people would pay half a million dollars to get a meeting with Warren Buffett for an hour or two. Mm. And um, so um, what what came across very simply, he said to her, just tell them all to, he used the word if, um, <laughs> get them all to get nicked. You know, because, and constantly we're being told by people, just tell them to get effed. Right, yeah. you you know what you're doing. You own fifty five percent of the company. You're outperforming all your peers, and for some reason they've got something against you. So don't worry. Who cares? And so it won't make any difference. You'll keep making more money year after year. You'll keep growing your business, and one day they'll say, "Jesus, we got that wrong. We backed some of those um, fly by nighters. All these people that were going to make a fortune and never did, and all went broke." And and another bloke said to me, you know something? You're one of the only survivors in retail. If you look back in the last 50 or 60 years, I've been doing this for 60 years. Mm. I said, just look back in the last 60 years. And I'll name you thousands that have gone broke, but I'm flat out counting five that have survived. So you're the great survivor. Yeah, that's true. Jerry, and then you see someone else that says, you know, um, It'd be very scary buying Harvey Norman if Jerry Harvey and Katie Page left. They've been there a long time. And then you hear someone say they're too old. And then you hear someone say, um, yeah, but they haven't got enough outside directors on the board. And then you then you hear others say, the good thing about Harvey Norman is half their boards comprises executive directors. So you have all these mixed messages going out. Mm. 
And and if you talk to anyone that runs a public company, anyone that developed a company and turned it public, they'll all tell you the same thing. They'll say, you know, your executive directors are the most important part of the company. The least important part is your outside directors. Now, that doesn't mean they're not good people and, and you they do a good job and all that sort of thing. But if you look at, say, David Jones and Myers, there's two big retailers over the years, they ticked every box, every box for the last 30 or 40 years mm. on outside directors and and all the compliance things. They were the shining example. They, they ended up in a in a terrible place. Yeah. So... Uh, uh, the record says that it's all bullshit. Yeah. And I tell you one thing, both those companies did always much better than you. They always did much better ads. They were great quality ads. They were really expensive. And it didn't help them one little bit. Your ads, as you know, star you, and they're really crappy ads, but it's really helped your business, hasn't it? Sure. So, you know, like I, I haven't got an advertising agency. <laughs> We don't pay for it. We know that. Right? We know that. We're here and, and we and see we've our got ads. No talent because it, and why would you pay for no talent? So, <laughs> but our ads work. Yep. And, and you know, when you look at uh, our sales increases over the last six months, extraordinary. And then it's continued into July and August. How? So, you know, we're, we've just had two wonderful months in July and August. And, you, and so... How important um, has JobKeeper been for you? Oh... Uh, it's helped, but yeah. realistically, it would have made no difference practically. Mm. Um, will, will, will you lose it after September? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm. So, but but that won't really matter. Every country in the world where we are, and you got to remember, we're in eight countries. We employ twenty thousand people. Mm. Uh, the company, and so um, every one of those countries have had some form of. Job keeper, um, and and they just call it different things. So we've got money in every country in the world, but that all stopped. But but if that hadn't been there, we still would have had a record profit. So how important it helped? It helped yeah. no doubt about that. How important is the foreign part of the business nowadays? Like we we know you're strong in Australia, and clearly you have a, a pretty big foothold in New Zealand. But what about the other countries out there? Well, how that's important. Our, that's our that's our growth factor over the next five, ten years. We're looking at um, Malaysia as being one of our big growth factors and where we've got maybe four, 35 stores or something like that in 32, three, I can't remember, mm. in, in Malaysia, Singapore. That could be, well, that will be between 50 and 100. Uh, we're opening some more stores in in Ireland, uh, so Ireland's now one of our best performers mm. in terms of percentage increases. Where we were losing a lot of money uh, years ago, we lost over two hundred million there. Um, but now it's making good profit. So we stuck in for the long haul, and now we're a major player in the Irish market. And Slovenia, uh, I don't think we can grow much there, but we certainly can in Croatia. So we're opening some more shops in Croatia. Mm. Then we're looking at Poland maybe as our next country that we might go to. So if we can build our company in those foreign markets and somehow over 
over the years get it up to 30, 40, 50% of our total profit. That's our aim. Mm. And and if we do that, and then we're talking about trying to get to a billion a year profit. Um, so we're, we're well on the way. And you talk about any other retailer in Australia having more potential than Harvey Norman, I'd I dispute that. Well, what, um, do you, what do you dispute? What, what's your strength? Let's, let's aim it up. It's you versus JB Hi-Fi. JB Hi-Fi is the darling of the, the market. You're often, I think, mistreated, and you definitely think you're mistreated by the market. What's your strength, you think, compared to uh, JB Hi-Fi? Oh, we've got a lot more strength. No mm. comparison. JB Hi-Fi is an Australian company that does very well. It's in shopping centres with the JB Hi-Fi shops, and they've got good good guys shops outside of shopping centres, and they do a good job, no question about it. Uh, we made a profit after tax forty percent higher than them. Uh, our potential is is all across the world, and they sell they only sell electronics. Uh, you know, we sell um, furniture, bedding, carpets, home improvement. So you know, we've got a a much bigger profit potential mm. uh, to grow our business than, than what they have. Not, that's not saying anything bad against them. They're good. Yeah. But the fact is that we make 40% more profit than they do, and we've got a lot more potential. So, But what happens is that people run through sweet spots where you're the darling of the moment. The danger is when you're the darling of the moment, that it never lasts. It's it's like it never lasts. Every company that I've ever seen is the darling at the moment. Later on, they're not. And so everyone has their turn. I breed racehorses. And, you know, I haven't got a good horse at the moment, but the bloke down the road has. Next year, I'll have the good horse because my turn will come. Mm. So you've just got to... You've got, you're in the cycle. You do the best you can. And then one day you wake up and everyone says you're the darling. And you think, how did they work that out? I hope I'm alive to see that one day, Jerry. Now, look, look, a couple of questions before we go. Your online performance, because, you know, online performance have done very well with the lockdown. How, yep. have, you, how have you done? Have you actually grown and improved your oh, online offering? Yes, like doubled and tripled in lots of places. Mm. So I don't put it out like all the others are putting out their online sales, but if I put mine out, I'd put them to shame. But you're so, you're, a bi- you're bigger online than than the others. Oh, bigger than bigger than most of them because we we we've got our online business in 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 every shop and 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 we've got a big a big a huge number of people employed in online and online's going through the roof. But I don't go out, um, you know, talking a lot about online because it's not our big profit earner. Our big profit earners in the shops. So. To, to give you some idea, um, let's say a shop was writing $100 a week, of which 5 to $10 is online. Then the shop closes, which they did all across the world. Then the shop, instead of writing $100 a week, writes, say, 50 or $60 a week, and it's all online. No, no one in the shop. So then the shop reopens. Because it's been closed for a while, you get a surge in sales. So instead of writing $100 a week, you write $150 a week. But the online then drops back to $10. Mm. So then you say to yourself, well, doesn't that conclusively prove that 
the online staying where it is basically growing a little bit, but as soon as you open the shop, the shop goes up 50%, and the online drops way back. So we've got proof of that in every shop we've closed, every shop in every country in the world. That's what's happened. But that never gets printed. So they print all this other stuff about how great online is in the pandemic. Of course it is. Ours is great. Everyone's is great. Can't be anything else. So it's gone up 100%. Ah, that's the future. No one's ever going to go into a shop again. We proved conclusively that that is absolute bullshit. Okay. Let's go to the next one big issue, which you would have an opinion on, and that is afterpay. Now, you know, you, you do like to invest in the stock market. Uh, do, does your company work with Afterpay? And if so, what do you think the future of this company or Zip or, or, or the others in the market, Jerry? Well, the market thinks that they're the darling. And, and, and like, I don't think they're bad businesses. I'm just jealous I didn't think of it instead of them. <laughs> so uh, you and I should have done it all. Or, yeah. or better still, me without you. Um, so you've always I been very an unselfish guy. That's uh, that's yeah, you've yeah, got this yeah, on tape you know, now. You, you pretend to share, Peter, but you really don't. You know? So, <laughs> but what do you think of their businesses, Jerry? Like, are, are you using Afterpay or Zip or both in your business? No, we use Latitude mm. instead of them. That doesn't mean we won't use them at some stage in the future. We haven't got any reason not to. We we. We're, we're we're just we just think they're extraordinary that mm. you can be worth five billion, let alone ten, let alone twenty, or whatever afterpay goes to. So it's it's beyond comprehension, and and so if it ever gets there, that's great. Uh, I wasn't game to buy shares in them when they were only worth one billion. Mm. So for when they're worth ten billion, I. I I'm not going to buy a share, but I should have because then there were twenty billion. Yeah, and 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 you look at it and you think this is impossible, but it is, and and so, um, I I gobsmacked mm. as to, to as to what's happened, uh, and and good luck to the guys that pulled it off, Zip and Afterpay and some others. So, mm. um, everyone in the market's like. The danger is when you buy shares like that, and I can give you 50 stocks, if you like, across the world, and so can you, um, where you buy shares and you see the things go through the roof, and then all the pundits get in and the gamblers get in and they buy, but that share that goes from naught to $20 very quickly often comes back to $1, and then everything goes. You've lost a lot. The great advantage Harvey Norman's got is that we've got three and a half billion in net assets. And it's a big percentage of our opposition have got somewhere between naught and naught in net assets. Mm. And so there's a huge difference. So we, we when when the recession, depression or whatever, if and when it ever comes, we're in a very strong position. And now we have no debt, zero debt. This time last year we owed six or seven hundred million. Mm. And now we owe nothing. So now I've got people ringing me and saying, You've got a lazy balance sheet. <laughs> right? Yeah. You've got to do something about that. 
the, the price of money is so cheap you can go out there and, and borrow way under 2%. In your case, we can borrow way under 2%, 1.5%. But others, a lot, most others can't. But we can, we can borrow at that price because we've got all the assets to back it. So at the moment, I could go out and borrow a billion, maybe two billion, and I could go out and buy this, that, and the next thing, um, buy a heap of shares in, put a billion dollars into Afterpay, it doubles in profit, and I'll make a quick billion, then I'll be a genius. All right, get, that's to get off you t- being a genius and finish up on. One. I like being a genius. Yeah, I know. Well, that, well, in fact, this question is related to your business genius because there are people out there now, Jerry, who would be struggling. Like, imagine you've got a, a very successful cafe in the CBD of Sydney, and no one's going back to work because the you know the big offices out there are scared to, to come back to work. Yet they, yet their employees found, find time to go into your shops on the weekend, and not, they're not afraid of doing that. Jerry, what advice would you give someone who's currently you know, really struggling with a good business, but this temporary problem they've got really makes them feel, you know, negative and and doubtful about the future? What would you say to someone like that? I, I'd just say, mate, best advice I can give you is cash in and buy Harvey Norman shares. No, oh, you're rotten so and so. You're as bad as the people who are criticising you. Come on, you, <laughs> you've been you've been through some tough times in retail. It must have been times when you thought you, you might go to the wall. What would you really tell someone like that? Well, the, the best thing you can do, if, if you know that you're not going to make it, give up. Mm. But if you think there's a chance, there's a bit of light at the end of the tunnel, just keep going and, and, and believe in yourself. And, and then when the tide turns, suddenly there's a vaccine, everyone's back in the city, and your business is good again, and you can look back in the years to come and you can think, geez, I went close. And, but I stayed in. It's a bit like us when, when the GFC hit Ireland, and in one year we lost the first year 50 million. The next year we lost another 50 million. Then we followed that up and lost 100 million. But we said, no, we're not going. We're going to stay here because sooner or later, we're going to tell everyone and show everyone we're the best retailer in Ireland. Now, it took us 10 years, right? It took us 10 years of pain and a hiding every day. But now, you look at what we're doing in Ireland, you think, wow, those buggers deserve it because they stayed in there. They fought like buggery. And now they're doing really well and they're looking at profit increases this year that are way above last year. So the thing is, but if you've got no chance, if you've got, you can't, it came from left field, it got you. That, mm. that guy in the city with his, um, with his cafe or restaurant or whatever he's got, it's not his fault. The thing came from left field. Mm. It's like a bloody volcano erupting or an earthquake. And and it, and it a good model goes straight out the window because someone from someone intervened that should never have intervened or something. So, um, but if if there's a bit of light at the end, work twice as hard. Just work twice as hard. All right, now, it'll turn around. It'll uh, turn around. Uh, one last tip you can give that that, that person who's struggling. You, you said you haven't got a, a decent horse at the moment. Have you got a decent horse they can follow during the racing season? I've got a horse called Libertini. Yeah. And um, it's it's my best horse at the moment. Potential. Um, about a year ago, 
when it first hit the tracks and that sort of thing. People were talking about it as the next big superstar. And then something went wrong. So I thought instead of giving it a week or a month off, I gave it three or four months off. And um, and, and I'm hoping now because I did that, uh, it'll come back and it'll reward me. And, but, you know, I live in hope. Um, but to me, having a champion horse is like having a champion shop that, you know, where you've got some shops that make a lot of money and some shops make none. And so I've got shops that make huge amounts of money. And then I've got shops I lose money. And so for me, the challenge is that shop that's losing money, I don't want to close it. I want to try and turn it around. I've got to figure out how to turn it around. So I spend a lot of my time trying to figure out how I can turn around the loss-making shop. But sometimes I close the shop. I just say it's too hard. Mm. I can't make it work. And, and sooner or later, you've got to face the truth. And, and so every year we end up closing one, two, three shops. Uh, we've just, just closed a couple recently and um, because I don't know how to turn them and I just can't. So when you've got a business model that doesn't work, you can, you can work so long on it, but if it's never going to work, what the hell do you do? You close it. Well, Jerry, probably the, the best um, business or best uh, thing you've invested in was your wife, Katie, of course. We all know that. Without her, you'd be no one. Even she knows that. <laughs> Jerry Harvey, thanks for joining us on the Peter Switzer Show. Thanks, Peter. That was Jerry Harvey, and this stock market story underlines my argument that I often put out there that you can make good money on stocks when quality companies get trashed in a panicky market. Now, on the subject of stocks, if you are interested in making money out of the stock market and getting some informed views, think about taking a free trial of the Switzer Report. Uh, it's a 21-day free trial. You get a chance to see some of the ideas from people like myself, Paul Rickard, um, we've got Tony Featherston, who was the former chief editor of BRW magazine in its heyday. James Dunn, a whole lot of people like Julia Lee and uh, Rudy Philippic Van Dyke, all these people contribute on a, uh, a regular basis and they give you ideas on what they're thinking about when it comes to good potential stocks to invest in. So go to switzerreport.com.au, give yourself a free trial, give yourself a chance to make a bit of money on the stock market. Of course, that's not advice. That is simply financial education. Uh, investing in the stock market can be risky, and you have to be aware that when you go chasing risk, sometimes you can lose, but sometimes you can win. That's the switchreport.com.au. Well, my guest on the Peter Switzer Show is Nick Bryant, who's written a book called When America Stopped Being Great. Now, Nick was born in Bristol, England, has worked in Australia for the BBC as one of the most trusted and senior foreign correspondents. He's a regular contributor to several Australian magazines and newspapers, including The Australian, The Spectator, The Monthly, and The Australian Library Review. Nick, thanks for joining us. Peter, it's my pleasure. So, Nick, when America stopped being great, now, it's a, it's a great title because we know we know that Donald Trump uh, came to power with a, a cap which said uh, making America great again or words to the effect anyway. And that was his, his, uh, his war cry. When do you think America stopped being great? Oh, look, what I argue in the book is it's a process that goes back decades, really, and that the rise of Donald Trump was partly to do with the decline of America. 
I mean, when Donald Trump said the American dream was dead, so many millions of Americans who have become castaways in the new economy and castaways in the globalized economy believed him. Um, you know, the Republican Party had changed. The conservative movement had become an anti-Obama movement. So it made sense for them to go from somebody like Donald Trump, who was the most virulently anti-Obama uh, candidate. But what I argue in the book is that, you know, he was the result of a lot of trend lines, technological. You know, the Internet placed in his hands the tools of Twitter and Facebook that were so useful. The cultural trends worked in his favor as well. The fact that all of us were watching reality TV on, on television and who was one of the biggest stars of reality TV, Donald J. Trump. So many things worked in Donald Trump's favor. We regarded his victory in 2016, Peter, as a historical accident. What I argue in the book was that by 2016, his election was almost historically inescapable. Yeah, it's funny you should say that. And I think it's really interesting that you you do link the strangeness that we see in the media, of which his success um, with that program of his called The Apprentice, where the um, the, the climatic um, event of each show was for him to look at someone and say, you're fired. And somehow people liked the idea of that. I think I grew up in a, a generation where when someone getting fired was, you know, really a, a scary and an unwantable a, uh, action, but somehow people celebrated um, a billionaire or maybe a millionaire um, sacking someone publicly <laughs> live on TV. It says a lot about how we change as a society as well, I think. Yeah, and I think one of the great paradoxes of Donald Trump, Peter, was how this billionaire, and I agree with you, that comes from the question mark, uh, this billionaire from New York managed to transform himself into this working-class hero of the Rust Belt. Mm. Uh, the states that unexpectedly supported Donald Trump and put him in the White House. And, you know, those empty factories in that post-industrial landscape in, in states like Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, the states that he unexpectedly won, you know, those empty factories really did echo to that slogan in 2016, make America great again. There were really a lot of people who thought they were on the wrong side of globalization. They were on the wrong side of the digital economy. They thought that the elites on the east and the west coast were the beneficiaries of an economy that just didn't work for them anymore. And it was interesting that this guy, known for firing people on air, for putting people out of their job, mm. actually became the person who they thought could get their job back. Mm. Nick, um, do you put a date on when the deterioration of the U.S. reputation, uh, if, if it had, a, and it did have a reputation as being one of the greatest economies of all time, its, its growth in the 50s, 60s and 70s was you know, quite extraordinary. Um, and even today, um, the, the top companies of the world are still being produced out of America. But do you, do you put a date on it? Because as an economist who was writing over the period from, 85 onwards, um, the, the words of um, John Hewson came back to me in around 1991. And, and I taught with John Hewson so I, uh, at the University of New South Wales, so I, I've, I've known John pretty well. But at this point in time, 91, he was leader of the opposition or, or at least a senior minister in the opposition, or a shadow minister in the opposition. And he made the point that 
When you embrace deregulation and globalisation, you unleash a, a force of change that really will um, uh, bring about uh, structural and institutional uh, developments that people won't like. And the classic one was if you work in a protected industry and all of a sudden it's no longer protected, guess what? Your life's going to change. You're going to have to retrain, find a new job, accept lower income. All these sorts of things are going to be a part of this progress. That's 1991, but do you come up with a date where you think America started to go downhill? Look, I think the 90s were a real problem, and ironically, that was a decade that was seen as this era of great peace and prosperity. After the Cold War, the perception was that America was transitioning very smoothly into a digital economy. Bill Clinton spoke about building the bridge to the next 23rd century, and a lot of people believed them, and at face value, it looked pretty good. But what I'd argue, and what I argue in the book, is that the 90s were pregnant with so many of the problems that we've had in the 21st century. And deregulation was a big part of that. Mm. Clinton repealed the Glass-Steagall Act, uh, which has separated the activities of the, the commercial and the investment banks. Uh, and that unleashed what Warren Buffett famously called the weapons of financial mass destruction, the derivatives that played such a big part in the financial crash of 2008. Another thing that Clinton did, or didn't do, more to the point, is adequately regulate the new economy. There were so many failures, corporate failures, from the startups in Silicon Valley in the early days of the internet boom, that it nurtured this idea that the new economy did not need to be regulated. The market would do it itself. And actually, that hasn't proven to be the case. You've had these massive, these massive monopolies that have grown up as a result of the failure at the beginning of the century and the failure in the 1990s to actually regulate the new economy. So we've got big companies like Facebook. So we've got big companies like Amazon. We've got the big companies like Microsoft. There was a failure back then to adequately re-regulate these, these, um, these new businesses in the new economy, and America's still paying the price for that. And, and Nick, do you go about trying to define what greatness is? Because you know, I know when I was asking that previous question, I was thinking about the economic greatness of America, which is very hard to dispute when you look at productivity, levels of production, the calibre of the goods that they produced, even the services they come up with. But when you look at other aspects of a, of a, a country, like the calibre of its you know, its health system, the wages that are paid. You know, you, you look to countries like Australia and the UK and think, well, th- these countries are, have always been greater than America when it comes to these, this sort of criteria. Did you address that sort of issue? Yeah, it's a really great question. And, and interestingly, Donald Trump really didn't specify when he said, I'm going to make America great again, when actually America was great. Um, when pressed, he finally came up with the Reagan era, which, of course, was the era when he became uh, famous and and became nationally prominent. He almost became a kind of avatar, uh, the personification of Reaganism. I think a problem for America is always struggled under the weight of its contradictions. I mean, you look at economically, the 1950s were absolutely roaring. Um, It's something of a historical anomaly that everybody seemed to gain in the 1950s. I mean, the general paradigm of, of the U.S. economy is you get a lot of uh, riches at the top, but not necessarily in the middle and the bottom. But in the 1950s, everybody seemed to be benefiting. And it was this extraordinary era of growth. 
But I mean, can you say the American 1950s were great? Because, of course, you still had a system of racial apartheid, segregation in the American South. Um, you still had an awful lot of discrimination against uh, African Americans. Now, that was uh, being uh, addressed by the civil rights movement, and there were small reforms in the 1950s, but you know, you didn't get the end of segregation until the mid 1960s. I, I see American greatness in sort of collective endeavors. You know, putting an astronaut on the moon, um, the civil rights movement led by Martin Luther King, you know, the feminist movement. I arrived on the eve of the Los Angeles Olympics in 1984. I mean, that just seemed to me a moment of, of national celebration in which everybody participated. It was a multiracial American scene that just was experiencing this modern day gold rush. I see American greatness in those moments and those endeavors. But I also, also think that the contradictions of American history, the legacy of slavery, the legacy of, of, of segregation, you know, makes it hard to say this country was great beyond any question because the history of America shows uh, that at various times in the history, many people were excluded from the American dream. Yeah, it's funny because when you were describing before you started looking at the groups who have never enjoyed the greatness, the 50s and early 60s, I guess, was uh, encapsulated in that great television um, series, Happy Days, that everyone seemed to have a car, everyone seemed to went go to the malt shop and all that sort of stuff. But it was a very insular American, primarily white um, economy and society we we're talking about. Um, but, Nick, do you address the issue, and as you can see, I haven't had the great pleasure of reading the book, but after seeing what you talked about, I was very keen a, to read it, and B, to talk to you. Um, do you talk about how America had to also contend with the responsibility of effectively being the global cop and the implications of having to deal with, you know, the Cold War, the, you know, the growth of Russia and China and all those sorts of things? Um, has that, in a sense, created sort of diversions from what may well have been going on at home? Yeah, I think, you know, you asked me about historical inflection points, and I think a really big one was the end of the Cold War. I think up until that moment, uh, the Cold War had imposed a discipline on American politics. There was a patriotic bipartisanship. Uh, Republicans and Democrats tended to work together in the national good. They came together, for instance, to pass the Great Civil Rights Act of 1964, which ended segregation in the South. In the impeachment uh, Richard uh, Nixon, which led to his resignation. You know, that, curiously, was a bipartisan endeavor. It was Republicans that drove down Pennsylvania Avenue and said, Nixon, Nixon your time's up, you're going to have to resign. Um, but at the end of the Cold War, that kind of fell apart. And there's a great quote in the book from a, a, a Soviet um, expert on American affairs. He said, we're going to do a terrible thing to you. We're going to take away your common enemy. Mm. And that coincided also with a generational shift in American politics. Uh, up until sort of the early 1990s, uh, American politics was dominated by the greatest generation, men and women uh, who had fought in World War II and knew what real combat felt like. They knew they'd seen it. They'd stormed the beaches of Normandy. They'd taken Italy. Um, after that shift, and it coincided with the fall of the Berlin Wall, you get a shift of the baby boomer generation. Now, they've grown up not in the real war of the, the, the 1940s, but the cultural wars of the 1960s. And they were far more combative politically. 
and they didn't share that sense of patriotic bipartisanship. And, it, and I mean, the book is partly a history of American polarization. And that was a really polarizing moment when politicians like Newt Gingrich, the former Republican House Speaker, and Bill Clinton, of course, who served two terms as president, came to the fore. Nick, Nick, you're kind of implying that out of the baby boomer generation, we sowed the seeds of the tribalism that we see um, right now. And I think Donald Trump has certainly cashed in on that tribalism, um, but he's not the only one. I think you know, there are groups that you might describe as being part of the, can- the cancel culture that are, uh, uh, and the, the, the Twitter sphere who uh, are effectively exploiting tribalism and therefore unity is really being challenged. Is this the sort of thing that's going to keep um, stopping America from being um, better? I won't, I won't say great again because we're, we're even disputing whether it actually was ever great. But is, this, is tribalism going to get worse before it gets better? It's really interesting, Peter. The Pentagon has actually identified national disunity as one of the biggest problems that America faces in terms of defending its national security. Um, polarization has become so endemic now. A lot of trends again, um, you know, the internet has been an accelerant of polarization. You know, we tend to follow people on Twitter and befriend people on Facebook who have very similar political outlooks to ourselves, and it reinforces this, our own prejudices and opinions. Um, residentially, what's been amazing in America in the past 20 or 30 years is how people have actually decided to live in communities of like-minded people. We call, call it the big sort. So this has created this patchwork of states, which we call red and blue America, the red Republican states and the blue um, Democratic states. What's also happened is that the parties themselves have become more tribal and more ideologically um, coherent. Um, In the 1960s, there were an awful lot of liberal Republicans and conservative Democrats. And the overlap between those two groups was where the compromise came from. Uh, those groups could work together, they could fashion legislation, they could compromise. Mm. What has happened now is that there is no Democrat on Capitol Hill who is more conservative than the Republicans, and there's no Republican who is more liberal uh, than the Democrat. And that, I know it sounds weird, but that is historically anomalous. There used to be a great deal of overlap, and as I say, that was where the system worked, that was where the compromise happened. Well, Nick, I'm, I'm really looking forward to reading the book um, to, to get the, the, these sort of snapshots that you've got on you know, um, the development of America. Uh, what's, what's the starting point of the, of the book? What date do you kick off the book? Well, I start the book actually meeting Donald Trump. Mm. I came here in 2013. I'd been an Australia correspondent for seven years. My bosses rang me up one day and said, as you fancy New York, I jumped for the chance, mm. worked for me and my wife. And... So I came here, and I think it was 2014. Yeah, 2014, we were doing a story about the demise of the Trump casino empire. And Donald Trump was so keen to distance himself from the, the casinos in Atlantic City that were shutting their doors, uh, which he didn't own anymore, that he decided he would do an interview with the BBC. And I sat with him for about 30 minutes. We got him very well. He was very charming. Um, he was excessively polite. It was almost like he regarded the BBC as an offshoot of the British monarchy, mm. which might explain why he was so kind. Because he's Scottish, um, of course. We all know he, that. <laughs> he is. He, he's a big Anglophile. He loves, yeah. he, he loves Britain, and he, he wanted to talk about his golf course in Turnbury. Mm. Um, 
Anyway, we, we spoke about half an hour, and the subject of a presidential run just didn't come up. It just seemed risible to me. And even then, I think it might have seemed a bit far-fetched to him. So that's actually the starting point for the book. And, mm. and it speaks of how we got Trump wrong. We didn't take him seriously. Uh, we didn't anticipate how you know, he would come up with a message that was so resonant for so many people who felt excluded in the American dream uh, anymore. And, and then the book goes to my arrival in the States as a teenager when I just fell in love with this country. It was, it was just full of possibility. I'd, I'd grown up in a country where a lot of people are reconciled to their fate at a, an early age. That's the United Kingdom. Mm. And I came to this land of plenty and this land of promise and this land of possibility. And I just fell in love with the place. And it really goes from that summer in 1984 where Reagan came up with this amazing slogan, it's morning again in America. He won a landslide, won 49 states out of 50 in the 1984 election. Mm. And the book takes us from how we went from it's, it's morning in America through to the American carnage of Donald Trump's nuclear address and through to the recent time, the mass morning in America that we've seen as a result of COVID-19. Nick, um, when you, you, you think about um, Donald Trump and he's run for his second term. What are his chances? I, I, I've shown my readers, you know, the the charts that show Biden is is well ahead. But what's your reading of what the American mood is like and what they might do uh, in November when the election kicks off? I think it's tough for Donald Trump because he finds himself obviously in the midst of the biggest health crisis that America's faced in 100 years. And there's been a lot of criticism, obviously, of his mishandling of it. Um, he finds himself in the midst of the biggest economic shock uh, since the Great Depression. I think what keeps him in the game, as far as he is concerned, is this has also coincided with obviously the most racial turbulence that we've seen in the last 50 years. And in these demonstrations, in this unrest, in this civil that we've seen over the past few months, Donald Trump clearly sees an opportunity. The law and order rhetoric uh, earlier in the summer, in the immediate aftermath of the video of George Floyd being suffocated, didn't resonate. It didn't work as he intended. But he's refined his message since then, and he's caught on this demand of the Black Lives Matter campaign to defund the police. It's not a policy that Joe Biden actually supports, but Donald Trump repeatedly says that he does. And that gives him something of an opening. Uh, now, will it win him the election? Um, I think, you know, he is he is behind at the moment. And will that message resonate in the American suburbs, especially amongst women who are such a key demographic? I think there is an appetite right now for a presidency that you could have on in the background, the kind of soft jazz that Joe Biden offers rather than the sort of heavy metal of Donald Trump. Um, but, you know, this is a country right now where um, even if the most people in America vote for Joe Biden, it doesn't necessarily mean he's win. he'll win. You know the vagaries of the Electoral College. And it's really interesting, Peter. If you look at the five elections of this 21st century, the Republicans have only won the national vote in one of them, but they've won the presidency three times. And that speaks of how the Electoral College at the moment is helping the Republicans, and that could end up helping Donald Trump. You cannot rule out a second term in the White House for Donald Trump. Over the weekend, I saw a documentary on Michelle Obama called Becoming. I'm, I'm sure you've probably seen that. And it seemed, to, uh, it seemed to me that there must be some forces out there who'd love to see her run for the presidency one day. Is there any um, uh, suggestion that she might one day, particularly if Biden got himself nailed by Trump at this election? 
Yeah, she's always said that she hates politics. She said that again at the Democratic National Convention when she was the, the keynote speaker on the first night. The thing is, Peter, she's just very, very good at it. And probably the, the most effective political communicators, uh, certainly on the Democratic side of politics right now, mm. uh, are both called Obama. You know, Barack Obama can still deliver a, a, a sort of electrifying speech, and, and Michelle Obama has uh, proved herself to be, you know, somebody of sort of pretty extraordinary political star power. You know, my sense is that she's truthful when she says she hates politics and really doesn't want to be involved in it. I struggle to imagine um, her running. But, you know, if Donald Trump did win this election, and she might feel that, you know, she had no other choice but to put herself forward. But, you know, my sense, I, I take her at face value. When she says she hates politics, I, I really do believe her. Yes, it's quite a rational conclusion, isn't it, that you should hate politics, but despite the fact that you've dedicated your entire life to watching it and commenting on it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, Barack Obama always had to apologise for Michelle for running. I don't think she was, obviously, I mean, a lot of political couples in America, and indeed a lot of political couples around the world, you know, you sense that early on in the relationship, there's a compact made, there's a deal made, we will run and we will be a partnership. I always thought Michelle Obama was a kind of reluctant participant in her husband's sort of political um, sort of project. Mm. Um, but as I say, I mean, she's just become so very good at it. And, you know, I think she would be under a lot of pressure in 2024 if there was a Trump second term um, to actually throw her hat in the ring. Finally, mate, China. Do you think uh, Trump will play a China... Uh, we're at war with these guys, if, if not politically, but or, or a real war, but an economic war. Do you think he'll he'll use that to try and win a few more extra votes? It's interesting how the trade war, the politics of it, has played out. Because even though it has actually sort of hurt a lot of Trump's base, you know, you go to the farmers in the Midwest, you go to the sort of lobster fishermen of Maine, um, who really have been hurt quite badly by the the, the China trade war. They're, they're still supportive of Donald Trump because they, they just like somebody having a go and like somebody having a fight and like somebody finally standing up to China. So it's interesting how you know that has played out over the past couple of years. What's striking at the moment is how he isn't really talking much about the Chinese trade war. What he is talking about is what he calls the China virus, of course, and he sort of blames China for messing up this great economy that he started the year with. And as you know, Peter, I mean, generally, if you've got a strong economy as an incumbent president, you generally get a second term in the White House. So the China rhetoric is different this year. I mean, four years ago, it was all about how China took away America's jobs. This time, it's about how China's taken away America's roaring economy as a result of the coronavirus. So one final one, Nick, if there wasn't a coronavirus, do you think um, Donald Trump would have won this election pretty easily? Well, I think this is one of the arguments for the book, that Trump's victory wasn't an accident in 2016, and he could still win 2020, and he would have stood an even better chance of winning 2020 if the economy had been in great shape. I mean, of the last, what, five presidents, four of them have won. The only one who didn't, George Herbert Walker Bush. Why? Because the economy didn't recover in time for Election Day, and Bill Clinton won a victory. Uh, I mean, generally, it's the economy stupid. You know, Bill Clinton's famous... Um, war room message in 1992. But alas for Donald Trump, this year, this time round, um, 
you know, maybe it's the empathy, stupid. It's the fact that Biden is on the same emotional plane of, of a country. If somebody has lost, you know, a wife and kid and elder son, uh, he's on the same emotional plane as a country which has lost more than 180,000 people um, to coronavirus. The coronavirus has been the massive game changer in this election, which is partly why Donald Trump is trying so hard to change the subject, to make this about civil unrest rather than COVID-19. Nick Bright, thanks for joining us on the Peter Switzer Show. Peter, it's been my pleasure. And that was Nick Bright, the author of a very interesting book, When America Stopped Being Great. And just listening to Nick, it reminded me of a story that uh, I haven't actually thought about for a while, and it happened during the time when Barack Obama was campaigning for his second term, and he and Michelle Obama went back to their hometown of Chicago. And uh, after a day of campaigning, they stopped into a local diner for a bit of uh, uh, bit of food and, and, and rest and recreation, plus as well a, a few photo shots and whatever. And uh, the owner of the diner came up to the security guards and said to them, that uh, she, he used to go to school with Michelle and he'd love to talk to her again. So they got, got his name, went and talked to Mrs. Obama and she said, yeah, look, I'd love to, to meet him. I haven't seen him for years. So they, he came over, met Michelle, met Obama. They talked for a while and uh, went away. And uh, when he went away, um, Obama said to uh, Michelle, you know, um, you seem pretty close to that guy. He said, I guess if you hadn't met me, you might have actually owned this diner. And she looked at him seriously and said, well, more the case that maybe um, uh, he would have been the, the president of America, which I think is <laughs> a, 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 very relevant, a very relevant observation, particularly if you've ever seen the documentary called Becoming about Michelle Obama. She's clearly a very impressive woman. So once again, that was Nick Bryant, the author of a book, When America Stopped Being Great. And that's the show for this week. Talk to you next week. Thank you.